Welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Nicole, and I am joined here again by the lovely Journey and Rebecca. This week, Journey will be telling us all about Andre Chikatilo, or also known as the Rustov Ripper, and Rebecca will then be educating us on the science of forensic serology and how it played an instrumental role in this case. Personally, I know very little about this case. It's in my um, big book of serial killers, but I've yet to read him. Uh, But I do know that it is very interesting, and he is um, a pretty messed up man. (laughs) So I'm very excited for this. I would also like to note that there is a listener's discretion advised, as there are detailed descriptions of murder, sexual assault, cannibalism, and body dismemberment. So on that note, Journey, would you like to tell us about the lovely Rustov Ripper? Yes, I would love to. So the Rustov Ripper is Andrei Chikatilo, and he was born October 16th, 1936, in what is now the Ukraine. He was born right in the middle of the Great Depression, which hit the Ukraine incredibly hard. So millions of people died, and many people were actually forced to resort to cannibalism, which is really gross. And throughout his childhood, he was constantly being told by his mother that he had an older brother who was kidnapped and eaten by neighbors. So that played a role. Um, And even though this story has never been verified, it's suspected that this is one of the reasons why he actually cannibalized his victims. So that's horrifying. Um, Additionally, it is thought that he suffered from hydrocephalus as a baby, And hydrocephalus is also called water on the brain, and it's the accumulation of your cerebral spinal fluid in the brain, causing an increased pressure. And so because of this, he wet his bed into late adolescence, which his mother actually, like, beat him for. And as he got older, he had the inability to sustain an erection. And so that being said, he had a sexual experience that was very humiliating for him, Um, When he was 15, he attempted to sexually assault a young girl, and he ended up actually ejaculating during the struggle that they had. And so psychologists kind of think that this was the interaction that made him associate sex with violence and led to his sexual complications as an adult. So. Oh my god. Isn't that awful? Oh, like, what? why was there a struggle to begin with? Like... Because he was trying to rape her. Oh, yeah. Like, it wasn't consensual at all. Okay. I, my mind was thinking that it was a totally consensual act, and just, like, as he's about to, like, put her on the bed, he just finished no. right then and there. Oh, no, that makes it even worse. Right? Oh, yeah, so you'll see how this plays a role in his crimes as we uh, continue on. Um, So, from the age of 20 to 23, uh, Chikatilo was in the Russian army, and once he completed his service, he became a telephone engineer in 1960. Uh, Three years later, he got married, and even though he had an awkward relationship with sex, he was able to have two children. Uh, So he was, yeah, he was very forthcoming with his wife about his impotence, so they devised another way for her to get pregnant. Um, So he would just ejaculate externally, 
and then pushes semen into her with his fingers. And no. Yep. No. <laughs> no. And it worked. What? No. <laughs> they had two children. Oh my god, that's so gross. I don't yeah, like that so, at all. Yeah, it's not fun. Um, but yeah, they had a daughter in 1965 and a son in 1969. And then from 1971 to 1981, he was a teacher of Russian literature. But there were a lot of complaints of him molesting his students, so he had to move schools quite often. And then in 1981, he became a supply clerk for a raw material factory, which required him to travel, and it gave him very easy access to many of his victims. And he was no longer a teacher, which is good. I don't understand Um, how when he was accused of molesting kids, they went, okay, well, you can just go work at a different school. Like, shouldn't that just... I was thinking that, too. He should just not be allowed to work with kids, I was like, yeah. why aren't you just firing him? Fire him, and you won't have to deal with this problem. Not just move him from school to school. You're just giving him more children to molest. Yeah, it took them ten years for him to get a different job. That's like, awful. That's, yeah. So, anyway, in September of 1978, so before he was no longer a teacher, he had to move to a small mining town outside of Rostov. I cannot pronounce the name, so I didn't include it. And so this is where he committed his first murder. And on December 22nd, he lured a nine-year-old girl into a house that he owned secretly. And he attempted to sexually assault her, but he couldn't keep an erection. And he ended up choking her to death, stabbing her body, and then ejaculating while stabbing her. And then he dumped her body in a nearby river. So, gross. Um... There was also evidence linking him to her death, such as her blood outside of his house and an eyewitness who actually saw him with her. But a 25-year-old was arrested and executed for her murder. And what? he had a previous... Yeah, he had previous, like... Um, he was in jail for rape and murder and something else. Um, but he ended up confessing to the killing. And then he recanted his confession, obviously, at the trial. But it didn't really matter because he was still found guilty and sentenced to death. So, Interesting. Yeah. Even with physical evidence tying. Yeah. Nice. That's good. I like to see that. Yeah, he, he wasn't even a suspect. They just went to this 25-year-old and was like, yeah, you did it. Okay. That's crazy. Um, so anyway, yeah. And following the death of his first victim, Chikatilo was only able to achieve sexual arousal and orgasm by stabbing and slashing his victim, which is seen in the brutal mutilation of all of his victims. And he actually told a psychiatrist that he would inflict a bunch of shallow stab wounds and then make them deeper in order to obtain the sexual arousal. And he said, quote, At the moment of cutting her, I involuntarily ejaculated, unquote. And so, it's just disgusting. But this makes him a sexual sadist, where the sexual gratification is received from stabbing as a replacement method of penetration, which you see um, people on Criminal Minds always talking about. And so, if you're ever wondering if that's true, it is. And it's disgusting. And so, his next murder was actually committed in September of 1981, which was three years after his first kill, so I'm surprised he was able to kind of lie low for those three years 
And his second victim was a 17-year-old girl who he, he attempted to sexually assault, but again couldn't get an erection, so instead he strangled and beat her to death. Uh, he didn't have a knife to stab her with this time, so instead he mutilated her with his teeth and a stick, which is not better. With, with his teeth? Like, bit her? Yeah, he, like, bit off her nose and, like, probably a portion of her tongue. He was known to do that. Um, he's not a very nice guy. And so after this second murder, he didn't really hold back. And so he killed more, six more people between July and December of 1982. And they were all between the ages of 9 and 19. And so his M.O. was to approach children, runaways, and young homeless people at bus stops and train stations. And then lure them into the woods or other secluded places where he would then kill them. And he would stab, slash, and eviscerate his victims with his knife. And sometimes he would strangle, strangle and beat them to death. And interestingly, a lot of his victims had striations around their eye sockets that were caused by a knife where he actually gouged their eyes out. Mm. And he said that he removed the eyes because he thought that his victims kept an imprint of his face in their eyes even after death. And it was actually that, this... That, that's not how yeah. that works. That's so creepy. Yeah. It's quite gross. But it was because of this that they were able to connect a lot of his victims together and catch him. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so his female victims were often, like, prostitutes or homeless individuals. And so he would try to have sex with them, but be able be unable to maintain an erection. So then he would kill them out of anger. And then he would achieve orgasm upon stabbing them. And then after they were dead, he would eat their sexual organs and remove other body parts, such as the tips of their noses and or their tongues. Wait, so sexual organs, he would eat their, like, uterus. Their uterus. Yeah. Oh my god. I don't like that. No. Yeah. Not, No. Does he cook um, it first? Is that rude of me? Is I don't that think insensitive so. to ask? Do you cook a uterus or do you I just would eat hope, it raw? I would hope you'd cook it. You should cook like most meat you eat, but this is weird. <laughs> there was no record of him cooking them, but I feel like it was all like heat of the moment kind of. Mm, yeah. After kill snack. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, his child... <laughs> Uh, His child victims were of both sexes, um, and he would lure them to secluded areas with some kind of ruse, and then he would tie them up with their hands behind their backs and kill them. Uh, I couldn't find out if they ate pieces of, if he ate pieces of the children or not, which I'm okay with not knowing. Um, And his next five killings occurred between June and September of 1983, And due to the accumulation of bodies, the USSR finally linked the past 11 murders to the same person because of the eye gouging, like I've kind of already mentioned. And so a Moscow police team was sent to Rostov to investigate, and it was led by Major Mikhail Fitisov. And he centered this investigation around the town that Chikatilo lives in, and he assigned a very special forensic analyst, Viktor Burikov, to the investigation. And, unfortunately, a lot of the investigation was focused on the mentally ill, homosexuals, known pedophiles, and sex offenders. And so, the investigators just created a list of suspects and interrogated their way through it. 
And quite a few of the mentally ill individuals actually confessed. And so we kind of heard all about that in our false confession and Norfolk 4 episode and how that's not fantastic. And unfortunately, three uh, individuals and a convicted sex offender actually committed suicide after being interrogated due to their intense interrogation tactics. So that's really scary. And even though the police officers were receiving, like, all kinds of coerced confessions, people were still being killed, so they continued with their interrogations and investigations to try and figure out who was actually killing these people. Do you think their interrogations involved a lot of torture to try and get a confession? I think they might have. Considering mm-hmm. it's also the USSR at that point in time? Yes, I can't imagine they were very humane. <laughs> Uh, But that's okay. And in October 1983, a 19-year-old prostitute was killed. And then in December, a 14-year-old boy was killed. Um, In January and February of 1984, Chikatilo killed two women. And then in March, he lured a 10-year-old boy away from a stamp kiosk. And he was actually seen by several people with the boy. And when the boy's body was found, investigators also found a footprint, semen, and saliva samples, which I think Rebecca will talk about a little later on. And then on May 25th, Chikatilo killed a young woman and her 11-year-old daughter, and he had actually known this woman for several years before he killed her, which is sad. I don't really know the extent of their relationship, but apparently they were known to each other. And then by July 19th, he had killed three more women and a 13-year-old boy. And at this time, he was fired from his, like, supply clerk job for stealing and was able to find another supply clerk job with a different company on August 1st of 1984. And then on August 2nd, he killed a 16-year-old girl. And on August 7th, another 17-year-old girl was killed before he flew to Uzbekistan for a business trip. And then while he was on his business trip, he killed two more women before he came back to Russia. And when he returned, a, an 11-year-old boy and a young librarian were killed roughly two weeks later. And the young boy was found strangled, castrated, and his eyes were gouged out, consistent with his M.O., And then on September 13th, 1984, Chikatilo was seen attempting to lure a young woman away from a bus station in Rostov. And so he was was arrested and held and searched. Uh, The officers found a knife and a rope with him. And because he was under investigation for theft from his previous jobs, the police were able to hold him for like a long period of time. And so obviously they uncovered his questionable past and he matched the description of the guy seen with one of his first victims. Um, but unfortunately, this was not enough evidence to arrest him, uh, even though he was found guilty of theft and sentenced to one year in prison. And thanks to the good old justice system, he was out on December 12th, 1984, after serving only three months of his one-year sentence. And, and at the... Sorry, I was going to say, and this is after his spree of, like, ten victims, Right. Oh, way more than 10. At the end of 1984, he killed 32 people. But, like, in the past, uh, like, in the time beforehand, like, while he was away on his business trip and the time after he got hired from his second job, like, in that little span, wasn't it however many said? Anyways, but still, 32 people, and he only served that 
much time. Yeah, that much time for theft from his job. And then he had killed 15 people in 1984, and so his body count was 32 people by the end of that. So that's concerning. But while he was in prison, the Russian Public Prosecutor's Office linked 23 of his murders to one case. So they they figured out that there was a serial killer on the loose. Thank goodness. And so they dropped the charges against the mentally ill individuals who had previously confessed because they knew that it obviously wasn't them. Um, And then since Chikatilo was in jail, there were no more bodies found after his September 6th killing. So the police were like, oh, he moved on to another part of the Soviet Union. And they sent out bulletins informing other police stations of the murders. But lo and behold, no other police force had murders like that because Chikatilo was in jail. And when he was released from prison in December, he kept a very low profile and he didn't end up killing again until July 31st of 1985 and then again in August. And so the police finally consulted a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist gave him a 65-page psychological profile of the unknown killer for the investigators. And so the psychiatrist described the killer as a man between 45 to 50 years old of average intelligence who was likely married but was also a sadist who could only achieve sexual arousal by seeing his victim suffer. And he also determined that because the killings happened on weekdays near mass transportation sites, the killer had a job that required him to travel regularly. And so he was actually pretty accurate because Chikatilo was 49 years old. He was of average intelligence. He was married and he was working a job that required frequent travel. So he was like bang on. And then in 1986, it is thought that Chikatilo didn't commit any murders, and he was just kind of following along the investigation um, to kind of see where it was at and kind of laying low. And I find it very interesting that he was able to control his homicidal urges for a whole year before killing more people in 1987. Uh, He ended up killing three boys on separate business trips so they wouldn't be traced back to the manhunt in Rostov in 1987. So again, he was still kind of following the investigation. And then in 1988, he killed three times again. Uh, He killed an unidentified woman in April and two boys in May and July. And the woman he killed had similar wounds to his other victims, but was killed by a slab of concrete. So investigators were not sure if they should link her murder to the investigation. I don't know how the slab of concrete killed her, um, but... They just said that that was cause of death. And the boy he killed in May was linked to the manhunt because of his injuries. And the second boy killed in July was also linked to the manhunt. But he wasn't found until 1989. And so after his 1988 killings, he took a little break until March 8th, 1989, when he killed a 16-year-old girl. He dismembered her body and hid her remains in a sewer... And because of that, she was not linked to the manhunt. And he then killed four more people between May and August, with only two being linked to his manhunt. And then his next killings happened in January and March of 1990, and were two young boys. Uh, The second boy's eviscerated body was found the day after he was killed. And by August 1990... Chikatilo had killed three more people, a 30-year-old woman in April, a 13-year-old boy in July, and an 11-year-old boy in August. 
And so, obviously, the police were panicking. I have a question. So, but, if I can kid okay, go ahead. cut in before yeah. we go on. Um, why do you think his M.O. changed for those few? Like, why slab of concrete? Why dismember and place his victim in the sewer? Like, was there anything that you found in your research that suggested something had gone on in his life and acted as a stressor or no? It was only because he knew what the police were looking for that he changed them. Really? Because he knew that, yeah, he knew that those bodies were being linked together. So he's like, oh my goodness, I have to change it so I don't get caught. What a smart bastard. Pardon my friend. Yeah. Oh my God. That's <laughs> so frustrating. Right? I don't like that. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. Continue. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. So like I was saying, the police were panicking. Uh, so Victor Burikov, the fren- or forensic analysis, not French analysis, um, suggested that police put a bunch of uniformed police officers at a large station or at all the large like train and bus stations. And then they put undercover officers at the smaller stations in Rostov with the hope that it would discourage Chikatilo from striking in any of those locations. And so this operation was implemented on October 27th, 1990. And then on October 30th, police officers found the body of a 16-year-old boy who had been killed on October 17th. And the same day that they found this body, Chikatilo lured another 16-year-old boy from a station that was under surveillance and killed him in a nearby forest. And then on November 6th, 1990, Chikatilo killed a 22-year-old woman close to a station that was under surveillance. And then when he was leaving, an undercover officer did see him. And so the officer kind of watched him as he went to a well and washed his face and his hands. And the officer noticed that he had grass and soil stains on his jacket and a red smear on his cheek. So naturally, the police officer did stop him and he checked his papers, but he had no real reason to arrest him other than he looked suspicious. So he had to let him go. But he did file a routine report, so it was on record that he stopped him. Which is good, because on November 13th, the body of Chikatilo's November 6th victim was found. And so they had to look through all the reports that were filed at that station, and they found Chikatilo's name. And so they checked into his employment history, and they were able to place him in most of the locations where the bodies were found um, at the right time. And so they placed him under surveillance the next day. And then when he was under surveillance, he was seen approaching many women and children and starting a conversation with them, but not killing any of them. And then after six days of surveillance, he was arrested, leaving a cafe by plainclothes officers. And I'm not sure why he was arrested on this day specifically, uh, but he was. And then upon arrest, he gave a statement saying it was a mistake. And when he was strip searched, they found a bite mark on one of his fingers. And it was also found that one of his fingers was broken and his fingernail had actually been like broken off during the struggle with his last victim. But he didn't go to the hospital for that because why would you go to the hospital for injuries when you were trying to kill someone? Um, nonetheless, he was placed in KGB headquarters in Rostov with a cell plant who was supposed to get as much information out of him as possible and then report back to the police. And so... After that, formal questioning of Chikatilo began on November 21st, 1990, 
And the investigator's tactic to get a confession out of him was to try and convince Chikatilo that he was a sick man in need of medical help and would be considered not criminally responsible on account of mental disorder. So they were just going to try and plead insanity. This did not work for them at all. So on November 29th, they brought in the psychiatrist who like gave him the psychological profile. And so he just read pieces of his profile to Chikatilo, and within two hours, Chikatilo confessed to 36 murders. And then on November 30th, Chikatilo was formally charged with these 36 murders, committed between June 1982 and November 1990. And he then confessed to killing another 20 people who the police had not linked together yet, and he led the police officers to the bodies of his victims that hadn't been found, to kind of prove that he had actually killed them and who was the Rostov Ripper. Um, unfortunately, three bodies couldn't be found, so he was only charged with 53 of his 56 murders, which is still way too high of a number for amount of people killed. Um, yeah, and that's the end of his murders. When And the trial... Sorry to interrupt sorry. again. Oh, just off the top of your head, like... What was his start and finish date for these 56 murders? Do you remember? He was active. Yeah, he was active between 1978 and 1990. So he started, I think it was September 1978, and then his last one was November 1990. Which is a very long time. But for 56 people, it's not really... Like... But he killed 15 in one year. Yeah, okay. Okay, yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> but yeah, no, I get what, I get what you're saying, though. <laughs> um, so his trial was actually the first, like, major event in post-Soviet Russia, so it was a big deal for everyone. And it started on April 14th, 1992. And during the trial, uh, Chikatilo was actually kept in an iron cage in a corner of the courtroom for his protection because the court was afraid that his victims' families would, like, try and get him. Which Honestly, I don't, I don't blame the families if they did want to try that. Yeah, me neither. And I think they did. There was one like, brother of one of his victims that attacked him, but when the, like, courtroom officers went to go arrest him, he was, like, surrounded by other members of the victim's family, so they couldn't arrest the guy who attacked him, which is fine by me. My God. Right? Um, Chikatilo was also not a well-behaved defendant, and he would frequently interrupt the trial by exposing himself, singing, and refusing to answer questions that the judge asked him. And then on May 13th, he withdrew his confessions for killing six of his victims, but it didn't really matter. And then even though he was showing this like, erratic behavior during his trial, he was still deemed fit to stand trial and criminally responsible by a psychiatrist because they had done that before the trial started. Um, and then in July 1992... Chikatilo asked for the judge to be changed because the judge was making too many rash remarks about his guilt. And so I think he just kind of already thought that he was guilty and was like, okay, no, you're guilty, and didn't really, like, bother it. But that claim was supported by both the defense and the prosecution. So both sides thought that the judge was being unfair about his guilt. Um, so naturally, the judge brought in a new prosecutor 
and the judge remained the same person. And then, on August 9th, the final arguments were delivered to the judge, and Chikatilo had to be removed from the courtroom because of his disruptions. And then deliberations began began on that same day, and they lasted until October 14th. And then when the court reconvened on October 14th, they began by reading out all the names of each of his victims and their murders, and they didn't finish until the next day. Isn't that unbelievable? Oh my gosh. Yeah. It took them like a day and a half to read out his well, victims and their how murders. How slow were they reading it, though? Because I feel like you could read 56 names... And, like, was it every aspect of their murder that was described? Yeah, did they go into detail? Uh, It didn't tell me, but I'm assuming that because it took them so long, they went into, like, name, age, date, where they were killed, what happened, what was done. So I'd imagine it was in... So it wasn't just, like, a Jane Doe, 14, died this day. Yeah. Oh. It was more than that. Okay, that would make sense as to why it took a day and a half, then. I think... Yeah, I think so, at least, because it took so long. Um, But then, on October 15th, he was found guilty of 52 of the 53 murders and was sentenced to death. And when he heard that, he kicked the bench across the cage that he was in and just started yelling. Which is a natural reaction to being sentenced to death, I'd imagine. On February 14th, 1994, he was taken to a soundproof room and executed with a single gunshot behind his ear. Oh my gosh. And that, yeah, and that's the life and crimes of Russia's most prolific serial killer, Andrei Chikatilo. He was nuts. I thought, what was yeah. the fact when we first chose to do this? You said that he had, like, mutilated a woman's body somehow. What was the fact you knew of him? Or am I thinking of, like, Ed Gein? He, he, no, I think you're thinking of um, Andrei Chikatilo, but it was that he ate her uterus. I'm fairly oh, certain. He had, okay, like, yeah, yeah, mutilated yeah. her body and then ate her uterus, which was a fairly common place for him, apparently. Mm, I don't like that. I don't like <laughs> yeah. that at all. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, um, I didn't, I honestly had no idea what to expect going into this. I knew he was some um, messed up. I didn't know it. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. So on that, I know Journey kind of mentioned it briefly, that Rebecca was going to talk about it, but now I will hand it over to Rebecca, who will help us um, understand serology a bit more. Yeah, so serology is specifically the study of blood serum and other bodily fluids, uh, and is generally concerned with the reactions between antigens and antibodies. Um, So serology essentially is not only about blood, it could also be any sort of fluid within you. So it could be blood, sweat, saliva, semen, urine, breast milk, uh, fecal matter. It's anything that could be fluid in your body can be studied under serology. So what forensic serology is, is the application um, of serology to samples taken from crime scenes. So like if there's a puddle of blood at a crime scene and they might take some of that sample and do uh, testing on it, that would be an example of forensic serology. So historically, serology was a really big deal, um, especially in the early 20th century. Um, And because we didn't have DNA, which is like really instrumental in identifying people now, 
um, this serology was really here to help us figure out, like, uh, who is a suspect and who can be eliminated from questioning and all of this stuff. Um, so generally speaking with serology, there's three questions that we're trying to answer, and that's what the nature of the biological evidence is. So is it a fluid? Is Did it come from a tissue or an organ? Um, we also want to know the species origin of the sample. So before we can do testing and compare it to um, other people's blood types, we need to know if the sample we're testing is actually coming from a human. If we're comparing dog blood to human blood, that's not going to do very much for us. <laughs> when using blood and bodily fluids in serology for identification, uh, what we're really looking for are the antigens um, and protein markers on the surface of the blood cells. Um, those are what dictate who has what type of blood grouping. So... On the surface of red blood cells, we have these things called antigens, and these are basically just sugars or proteins, uh, depending on what type of antigen it is, that helps, has, it has a number of functions in the body, such as transporting um, other type of molecules in and out of the cells. Uh, they also help maintain the structure of our red blood cells and also detect um, unwanted cells that could cause problems or illnesses within us. Antigens, in addition to having real functions, we also discovered in 1901 an Austrian immunologist named Karl Landsteiner, or Steiner, I'm a little unsure, um, he discovered that not everybody has the same antigens on our red blood cells. So him and his students identified the four blood groups that we know now, which are uh, antigens A, B, AB, and O. Initially, O was called C, I'm unsure why, and there was actually no AB, like, combined group before. His students actually found that in their own research. So, generally, for identification purposes, uh, scientists use two types of antigens to classify the blood types, which are ABO antigens and RH antigens. Um, however, they are ABO antigens are more commonly heard of, and that's just more so what you hear of in, like, the forensic setting. Just to give an example of blood types, um, as you very likely know, everybody has a blood type, um, whether you're A, B, A, B, or O. Um, so essentially all this means is that if you have group A blood, it means that the antigens on your red blood cells are A antigens, and that your antibodies are anti-B, so they would attack anything that contained B antigens. Similar to that, if you're group B, it means that you have B antigens on your red blood cell surface, and your plasma has anti-A antibodies. Uh, group AB and group O are slightly different than the first two, um, and this is because... Um, in group AB, you have A and B antigens both on your red blood cells, so they're sharing the surface. Um, and in the plasma, there are no antibodies for A or B, so these are known as universal recipients. Um, and they can essentially receive blood transfusions of any other blood type without serious complication of your blood rejecting itself. The final grouping, which is group O... Um, means that they have neither A or B antigens on the red blood cell surface. So their blood cells are looking a little naked. Um, and 
they also within their serum contain both anti A and anti B antibodies. Um, yeah, so basically, group A, you have antigens that support A and reject B. Group B, you have B antigens, they reject A. Group A, you can just get any kind of drip blood transfusion, and group O can give blood uh, to any other blood group, but cannot receive from anyone except their own group. So, um, that was just a little bio lesson on blood groupings and which one you may have, um, but I now want to talk some... Uh, about something that is a little more relevant to uh, the Rostov Ripper, which is being a secretor versus being a non-secretor. So, the blood group you belong to completely comes down to genetics, um, and we've actually identified a strip of DNA um, called the ABO gene. We've named it this because it is what dictates what type of antigens you get on your blood surface. Your blood type is set before birth, like while you were in the womb, so it you can't change your blood type. It's what you're born with, and it's what you'll have. Um, and although red blood cells are the most known for creating antigens, they actually aren't the only type of cells that can do so. So like blood cells, other cells that create fluids, uh, so ones that make sweat, saliva, semen, they can also read the ABO gene. And because of this, they're capable of making antigens. Um, however, they're in the creation of antigens, there are two genes responsible. So when we're dealing with blood cells, the genes ABO and FUT1 are involved. When ABO and FUT1 are both read, together they make the antigen sticky. And basically, because this antigen is sticky, it's able to attach to the red blood cell surface and do all the functions that it's meant for. Now, differently than um, the red blood cells, the other cells, when they create it, instead of being with FUT1, they read genes ABO and FUT2. So instead with this, instead of making a sticky antigen, this combination of genes actually creates a soluble antigen, which just basically float around your body on their own. They don't need to stick to a cell to uh, survive or have function. So usually this is, would be a great thing because it means that we can compare a blood sample to a semen or saliva sample and still be able to get the similar information out of it with regards to identification. However, it's a little more tricky than that when we realize that um, the FUT2 gene that's responsible for making soluble antigens um, in about 20% of the population is mutated, and those with a mutated FUT2 gene cannot create free-floating antigens. Um, so they, unlike 80% of the population, are una were unable to get their blood grouping, like their A, B, or O antigens, from uh, their other bodily fluids. We have to get it from a blood sample. Chikatilo, uh, in talking about non-secretors, he had the blood type A, B. When they tested the semen that was found on his victims, uh, the result came back that the semen belonged to someone who was type A. So initially, as Journey said, he was kind of let go. They didn't have anything against him. Um, but as it turns out, as someone with AB blood, he was a secretor of his A antigens, but he was not a secretor of his B antigens, so they were too weak to show up in testing. So 
today's day and age, the advancement in science and DNA, testing both of these samples would prove to be uh, good in indicating that he is, in fact, at fault. Um, but at the time, the testing just wasn't good enough to reveal that he was a non-secreter, only secreting one of them. The last thing I wanted to say about serology um, is that because of the advancements in DNA and because we use that primarily for identification measures, um, the use of serology for identification has kind of uh, diminished a bit. But despite this, it does still have its importance and its use in investigation. Uh, for example, serology can be used to link crime scenes together or a suspect or victim to a crime scene uh, if there was the same bodily fluid from the same or similar secretor at multiple locations. Um, it could also help include or exclude potential suspects based on their blood grouping. So if someone had a the blood group B and they found that the semen sample was blood group A, then they found they know that he can't be a suspect. Um, it could also help establish a crime scene, and by this I just mean in all those crime TV shows when you see them spray luminol on a wall and it lights up and there's all sort of blue blood splatter, um, that can help us determine that at one point there was a crime scene here and that perhaps an investigation should be happening. And finally, it also could help to identify if there are certain weapons used during a crime. So if there's blood found on... A knife, they might um, test the blood on the knife and compare it to the victim or a suspect and see if it matches and see if it matched the crime scene. So that's all I had now to really say about serology. It's advanced so much and there is so many different fluids that we can test. I genuinely didn't realize going into this that serology was any bodily fluid. I thought it was like saliva, semen, blood, sweat. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I find serology so interesting. Like bodily Sorry to interrupt. I was going to say bodily fluids scare me and make me so uncomfortable. So, you can take the serology out of our team we're going to make when we're graduated. I'm not going to deal with the bodily fluids. I found it was interesting that even your breast milk is counted as serology. Did you find that if you can... I When I read that, I was shocked. Can you get your blood type out of your breast milk? Supposedly, if you're a secretor, you should be able to get it from your breast milk because your floating antigens could just be floating around in any fluid that your body has. I love that. That is so icky. <laughs> Do you think there was... Oh, why does my head go here? Do you think there were... Sorry, I just hit my mic. Um, <laughs> female serial killers who like walked around scenes and just like and like got the breast milk going and they've been found found i mean i feel like they'd have to be like pregnant there's pregnant serial killers um maybe we should do a series of pregnant serial killers. ask them if they've lacked that would be crazy ew. ew okay anyways Side note. Um, well, thank you, Rebecca, for telling us all about serology. I definitely did not know anything going into this. So next topic, I think we're going to do two weeks. I know the past two episodes, we've had three weeks in between just because school's been crazy for us. Um, but hopefully in two weeks, we are going to be covering the Canadian RCMP 
colonel. His name's Russell Williams. He had a killing spree between the years of 2007 and 2010. And we're also going to discuss pattern analysis, but more specifically, we're going to focus in on tire tread analysis. Um, And you're going to hear all of the fun faults of this science, which I'm excited about. And before we go, I have a joke for you guys. So, how would a forensic scientist, forensic scientist or like a coroner or medical examiner, how would they draw blood? How? How? With a red marker. (laughs) (laughs) That was so bad. I love it. (laughs) Or a pen. I was going to be like, with a pen. With a red pen. (laughs) You didn't think that was going to be the answer. (laughs) The worst joke is always picked. Okay. That's fantastic. Journey, where can people find us for more information or just to learn about a little bit about us? They can find us on our Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Our Twitter is WTForensicsPC, and our website is WhatTheForensics.ca. On our website, you can place orders for stickers that we will mail out as soon as possible, so please place orders. We love sharing our stickers with you guys. And our email is WhatTheForensics at gmail.com if you feel like sending us an email with any anything you feel like sharing. I also want to thank my brother again. We have some of a techie setup going on now. We've got like three different browsers open trying to record our audio. So I do want to thank my brother for putting this all together. Um, I'm sure he doesn't want to shout out, but I'm shouting him out still. Anyways, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We want to thank you guys for your continuous support and listening to us. We hope you enjoyed it and we will see you next time. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm